starting with Psalm chapter 20, verses 6 through 7. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He answers him from his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And finally, in John chapter 4, verses 7, 9, and 10. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So if you're just joining us, we are at the end or ending a seven-part series on uh, the harvest. God calling those he saved by grace into the church and then sending us back out to be harvest workers. And we've had a chance over the past several weeks to look at the mission itself. What is the mission? Um, The fact that we are evangelists and missionaries as well. We've had a chance to look at the message that God sends us out with. We've had a chance to look at the motivation that God calls us to go and share the gospel of grace with. And that is out of our love for him and our love for one another. And then he talked to us uh, three weeks ago about the the mission field and how hard it is. um, That he's going to be sending us out. As sheep among wolves. And then he, gives us, he gave us great counsel in Revelation on the mindset that we're supposed to go out into that mission field with. And we looked at that last week. Um, and today I'd like to turn our attention to the methodology itself. When we go out, how do we go out? What does that going out look like? Very practically speaking. Um, and so this message today will be a little more systematized than the last, and that I'll be drawing from a few passages. And then next week we'll conclude on Easter Sunday talking about the man himself, uh, Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Um, so today let's, let's jump into this right away and let's look at what, how the Bible calls us as missionaries to be in the mission field. Because there's a very real look to it, and there's so much literature on it, um, and there's great debate on what that looks like, and we're not going to spend a lot of time debating those things. Uh, But I do want us to look at what the Bible has to say about us being sent out. And there are three things that I want to look at this morning. One, that the Bible calls us to go out under God's power. It's very important. Number two, as a living testimony. And then number three, in the context of the gospel itself. So, under God's power, as living testimonies, in context... Real context, real people, real places, real time, and how we share the gospel itself. Let's take a look first at going out under God's power, not man's. This is fundamental. We talked about it briefly this morning in Sunday school. But if you do not understand that God saves, then however you go out is going to be a mess. And you'll probably make a mess of those to whom you speak with. All right? The Bible is clear, Old Testament and New Testament, the prevailing theme is that God saves. He is the Lord of salvation. And I, and I just, there were so many passages I wanted to talk about and draw from, but there are a few here that I think really punctuate this teaching that God is indeed the author and perfecter of our faith. 
And therefore, when we go out, we must know that it's by his power that anyone ever comes to a saving grace in Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you believe in Christ, it's because he saved you. David writes in the 20th Psalm, he said, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He answers him from his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so we go out trusting in the gospel, and Paul talks about this in Romans, that it is the power of salvation for all who believe, right? The gospel itself, God's grace. Um, Jeremiah chapter 15, just before Judah's fall, this amazing prophecy when God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, the Lord says this, if you repent, because they were living in such a way where the, the Babylonians were going to come in and Judah was going to fall. This is probably right around 600 B.C. Speaks through Jeremiah and the Lord says, If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. For I am with you. Listen to this. God says, I am with you to rescue and save you, declares the Lord. I will save you from the hands of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the cruel. That's God's doing, God's power. Fast forward to New Testament, fast forward to Jesus talking with Nicodemus, the the great teacher, the great Pharisee of the law in John chapter 3, and he's talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, who should know these things, is confused on how someone is saved. And Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. God's work, God's power. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again by the spirit of God. And then Paul again, Paul comes back in 2 Thessalonians and he says this. We ought always to thank God because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to him. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is that saying? And that's just a sampling. Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, the prevailing theme, God saves. God saves. What does that mean? You can't save anybody. That means you are a testimony. You are a messenger. You go out to the least and the last and the lost, and you share the gospel, and you love people, and you minister to them, but you can't save them. Now, that's a hard thing for a lot of us, because we'll go, and we'll share the gospel, and then they don't believe, and we, we somehow take that personally, and we get angry. Because maybe you didn't share it effectively enough, or you weren't passionate enough, or you weren't persuasive enough. And you've fallen into this cultural trap thinking somehow you save people. You don't. I don't. God does. Jesus' name, Yeshua, it means the Lord saves. His very name testifies to he's the one that saves people. Not people saving people. As a messenger. Our love for God and our love for one another is to go out and tell people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To repent and believe just as Christ did. Now, if this is true, if it is true, and the Bible teaches that God's the one that saves, that means that when we go out, there are certain things we won't rely on, and there are certain things that we will rely on. First, the things that we won't rely on. You ready? We won't rely upon manipulation. We won't spend time trying to control and, and manipulate people into a saving grace. First of all, it's not possible, and therefore the effort is futile. But it's also deceptive, and Christ does not call us to be deceptive in any capacity. False befriending. 
If you come into a relationship and befriend someone and your desire is to get them to come to a saving grace and that's your only intent and when they don't, you then break off the friendship, that's a false relationship based upon false pretenses. Maybe you will engage in a form of spiritual bribery. You know, the, uh, um, the likes of the Word Faith Movement, Benny Hinn and others, where you'll promise a cure. If you have cancer, you come to church and I will lay my hands upon you and I will heal you and then you'll believe in Christ. Man-made tricks and techniques to get people to make a profession of faith. The old bait and switch routine where we say things like Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life but we're not going to talk about sin, heaven, hell or the need for Christ and his saving blood. We'll talk about the nice stuff first. Then we'll get you in and after a while and after we schmooze you for a while then we'll drop the heavy stuff. Oh yeah, that hell's real and sin's real and you need Christ to be saved or hell is going to be the eternal destination. We won't do that. We'll give the full story. We won't engage in emotional manipulation where we do things. There was a church that I read about where the pastor said he wanted the aisles, everything to be slanted down so that at the end of the service when people stand up and they give an invitation, gravity would pull them forward to the pulpit. You don't, it's a true story. You don't need gravity. We need Christ. We don't need to manipulate. We don't need tricks. It's the gospel of grace that people need to hear. It's Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is what people need to hear. We also won't appeal to man's fleshly desires in that we create all these really interesting things that we're attracted to and then we'll get them here and then we'll, we'll toss out the gospel somewhere. We don't know when, but we'll toss it out. I visited a church uh, last year and it just so happened that at the same time we were going to church on this campus, they were having this incredible car show. And so they were drawing people in with really nice cars. And I got to tell you, I was thoroughly distracted because I'm a car guy. And they were all old classics. And I'm an old classic car guy. And so I was going to worship Christ. And I was caught up with the 67 Shelby, you know. Don't think that's highly productive. To say, let's appeal to the flesh and then sneak the spiritual thing in. Christ doesn't do it like that. He didn't teach the disciples to do it like that. He doesn't call us to do it like that. So what are we to rely on? If it's not man-made tricks, if it's not manipulation, if it's not fleshly desires, what are we to rely on? We are to rely upon a few things really simply. First and foremost, the Holy Spirit. Right? I mean, if God saves, and he saves through the movement of the Holy Spirit, then we must rely upon him, the third person of the Holy Triune God, who will go out in front of us and prepare the hearts and minds to hear the message that we take. The Holy Spirit. The great preacher... The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. You've all heard of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon's estimated that he preached to over 10 million people in his lifetime. Now that's before, before the internet and, and radio and television. 10 million people. He served as pastor at Metropolitan Tabernacle for 38 years. Now this was a man, if you've read any of his stuff, he was, he was poetic, he was brilliant, he loved God. He preached on an average of 10 times per week. He testified to his lack of ability to do anything for the kingdom apart from the Holy Spirit. Two things, every single Sunday he did, as he would approach the, the pulpit to preach the word that he had prepared throughout the week, every step of the way, I think I've told you this already, every step he'd say, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he knew as great a writer as he was, it would have no impact unless the Holy Spirit went out and moved to save people. Not only that, while he would preach, they had this basement, a large basement. 
where hundreds would gather and pray while he was preaching. Why? Because they got it. It wasn't of man. It wasn't manipulation. It wasn't through fleshly desires or car shows or Easter egg hunts. It was through the Holy Spirit and the gospel of grace. And so he had people praying. And he believed in the Holy Spirit. So we must rely upon the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Titus. Listen, he says, We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Now listen, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So when we go out, we'll rely upon the Holy Spirit. When we go out, we will rely upon prayer. Now I say that and he goes, yeah, yeah, prayer. Yeah, I know we need to pray for the lost. Yeah, we talk about that a lot. Yeah, we pray on Wednesday. Yeah, no, prayer. Not marginalized prayer, not compartmentalized prayer, but we go out in prayer. Knowing that when we petition the creator of the universe for lost souls, we are engaging in the great commission. Real prayer, fervent prayer for the lost. When Jesus said in John 14, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. He was serious. He's saying, come to me and pray to the Father about your friends and your family and your coworkers and your next door neighbors that are lost. Lift their names up to me. Call the Holy Spirit to go out and convict them. Shh, pray. I mean, real prayer. Not, not, Lord, save Uncle Joe. Thank you for this food. And now we're going to eat our steak. I mean, prayer where you come before the creator of the universe and your heart is broken for those in your mission field who do not know Christ. Prayer that is like our Lord's prayer when he looked over Jerusalem and he wept because of their lostness. Prayer. We go out in prayer. We go out in the Holy Spirit and we go out in the gospel message itself. The Holy Spirit prayer and the gospel. Not manipulation, not tricks and not techniques. We don't need to slant the aisles here. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It's the power. There's power there. The real gospel message. The same message that brought you in is the same message that God sends you out with. <laughs> doesn't change. The message doesn't change. We don't go to a message of be all you can be, just do it or obey your thirst. We don't fall into cultural cliches. And it's way more than a cultural cliche. When Jesus came and he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe and obey and follow me. It's a real powerful message. Not something to tickle our ears or captivate us for a moment. The gospel's filled with power, dynamite power. To convict the sinful heart, to relieve the broken spirit, to quench the thirsty soul. And to lift up the downcast. So what happens? What happens when you say, I will not, I will not uh, get involved in man-made tricks. I will not try to manipulate. I will not befriend people falsely so I can sneak the message in later. What happens when you rely upon the Holy Spirit and you, and you engage in prayer and you go out with the gospel message? What happens? What happens? Kingdom work happens. Fruit happens. In my first three years of teaching, I think it was my second, but I, I want to be accurate. It was early. I had a young man who uh, came and I spent a lot of time with him in my office. We talked a lot about Christ and the gospel and spiritual things. 
Um, he was not raised in the church. He was raised uh, by atheist parents or agnostic parents. He had no understanding of scriptural matters. And we spent probably nine months or so on and off sharing the gospel with him, teaching him things from scripture. He graduated. I never saw him again. I never saw him again. I was faithful to share the gospel. I was faithful to rely upon the Holy Spirit. And I committed him to prayer. About, uh, oh, I don't know, six months ago, I get this message left on the machine. He said, I I don't know if this pastor, Keith Booth, is the same Mr. Booth that I had at De Anza College. But if it is, can you tell, can you give him this message? And he says, it's all true. It's all true. And he said, I believe in Christ. It's all true. And I... And I'm thinking, Sam, Sam. I'm like, Sam, I know who it is. And it was amazing. So what happened, right? It wasn't trying to trick him into a false profession. It wasn't trying to trick him to get him to come to church. It wasn't trying to sell things to him to appeal to his fleshly desires. It was the Holy Spirit. It was the gospel of grace. And it was prayer. And what happened? Years later, what, 10 years later, the Spirit moved and the young man is saved and he belongs to Christ. If God is the one who saves, then we are fools to engage in anything other than what he calls us to do. We don't, because he saves and he gives us direction through the spirit and through prayer and with the gospel of grace, we, don't, we can get rid of all the stupid um, tactics and tricks to get people to do things. You've all seen people make false professions. And it's terrible. And then six months later, they're gone. He said, what happened? It wasn't real. Why? Because you didn't really share the gospel with them. You told them things around the gospel or about the gospel, but not the true gospel. We can rely completely upon the Holy Spirit and prayer and the power of the gospel when we go out to do harvest work. So that's the first thing. We go out in the power of God because God saves. Second thing, when we go out, we must go out as a living testimony. What do I mean by that? One of, the most, one of the prevailing themes we see in the Old Testament is Israel rebelling against God, and as a result, they contaminate their testimony to the world. They're not living in a right relationship with God. They're rebelling against God. They're sinning against God. And the world sees it, and they say, is that it? Is that what you're calling us to engage in? When Solomon finished building the temple, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 9... God warned the people of this and he said, listen, if you and your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, they, his sons, those who follow, will become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. And of course they did. So they turned from God. They did not submit to God in his ways. They did not have that right relationship. And so what happens? The testimony to the world fails. Because they're saying, this is our God. This is whom we worship. This is the creator of the universe. But we're not going to listen to him. We're not going to obey him. When we go into the harvest field, we must go with our entire life. That means all of who you are. All of who you are as an employee, as a husband, as a wife, as a neighbor. In other words, our message of repentance, belief, and obedience needs to correspond with our life, how we live. Otherwise, we become noisy gongs and we make a mockery of Christ in the cross. 
If the lost in your mission field, your family, your friends, your acquaintances, your coworkers, hearing you constantly talking and testifying to this person, Jesus Christ, in the gospel of grace, and at the same time, at the other side of your mouth, saying vile things, talking in ways that are not honoring to him, speaking things that are not true, you ruin the testimony. If you are one who extols the virtues of purity and integrity and honesty with your friends... And then your friends see you lust after members of the opposite sex. You ruin the testimony. If you, if you are someone who says, listen, Jesus Christ is my personal Lord and Savior. And yet your life reflects a functional Savior of another kind like work or money or power or popularity or status. And everybody sees that and say, you profess Christ. You say that he's your Lord and Savior. But I see your functional Savior as something else. Then it ruins the testimony. It ruins it. Now, some of us are good at speaking Christ, and yet we say, but my life will not match. It will fall upon deaf ears. Before I came to a saving grace in Christ, I distinctly remember a professed believer sharing the gospel with me. And it was the complete gospel. One evening, it was a gentleman that I knew not too well. He was a, a friend slash acquaintance during my undergraduate studies. And he talked to me about sin. And he talked to me about God being a holy God. And he, he said to me, first time anybody ever said to me, you're going to stand before the creator and have to give an account for your life. I'm like, what? And he said, and your life doesn't match up. And he talked to me about the need to be saved through Christ. And he talked to me about the sacrifice of Christ and the amazing love that God poured out through his son to us. And that I could have salvation by grace through faith in Christ. He shared the entire gospel message. And it would have been incredibly compelling had he not told me when he was drunk. But he was drunk. And so I heard him. And I laughed. I thought, how could you? Tell me about these things that you think, and you're drunk. It fell on deaf ears. In fact, it did not draw me in. It pushed me away. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, if that's the God that you serve, and this is the testimony you profess, and you do it in a drunken state, I want nothing to do with him. I don't want to know this God or this Christ or this creator. I don't want to hear it. Testimony failed. The Bible calls us to be 1 Peter chapter 2, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? Why? Look. So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Not out of the darkness, into the darkness, but to declare rightly with your mouth and with your life. So that your friends and your family and your coworkers don't laugh at you when you talk about Christ. Peter said, therefore, what? Rid yourself of malice and deceit, hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. And then he said, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Your testimony, your message, and your manners have to match, right? What you say and how you live have to correspond. Because if not, if you go out to the mission field and your life is completely contradictory to what you're saying, then the testimony will fall on deaf ears. Now, let me be careful here. Because then they say, well, I'm not perfect, therefore I shouldn't share the gospel message. That's not what this is saying. Don't twist the word of God. 
Everybody's going to stumble. In fact, if you say, I'm not good enough, I'm not perfect, I can't share it, then you're missing the gospel itself. That's what the gospel is, right? We're not good enough, we're not perfect, therefore we need the gospel of grace. But that's very different than you living in absolute rebellion against the creator and then going out and talking about the creator and having people see the disconnect. Your manners and your message must match. So God sends us out under the power of the Holy Spirit because he saves. And he sends us out as a living testimony, not just what you say with your mouth, but how you live. In fact, we can go one step further. Those who do not know Christ, watch those who profess Christ closely. Closely. I've had colleagues over the years, neighbors, who will ask questions. And they're probing, want to say, so how do you live? I mean, this is what you say. You know, I've listened to your sermons online. You profess Christ. So, so what would you do in this situation? How would you work it out? They want to know. And of course, there's that side that I know for me before. I, I want to see them fall. I want to see the believers stumble. I did. I took great joy in it. Because it just solidified my position that the whole thing was bogus. Your manners and your message have to match. Lastly, we see in the Bible a firm reliance upon God who saves, calling us to be living testimonies, but then we see the gospel always in context. And what do I mean by that? For years, there's been this debate within the church about the right way to go out, the right methodology, right? Some will argue that it's, it's, it's open-air preaching, and that's, that's the only way, the primary way that the gospel goes out. We've got to go into the parks and into the public places and grab a soapbox and open the Bible and preach to the public. We see that scripturally. Others say, no, 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 that doesn't work. It's got to be personal, one-on-one street evangelism. We've got to go into the streets and go to our neighbors and knock on the doors and we've got to tell people about Christ. That's the way to do it. And we see that scripturally also. And now, and the new movement is, no, 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 it's all relational. It's relational evangelism that we're called to. We have to make friends with people, and then in the relationship, we bring the gospel in, and we see that scripturally too. Now, in our overpublished culture, of course, there's a book on each one, and each one will tell you that their position is right. The funny thing is, the Bible has all of them, right? But, in each particular case, the method that is used is appropriate given the context, so we do see public preaching. I mean, if you, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, you have three chapters. Jesus is out in the public. He did this a lot. And he's preaching publicly. So we see that. Certainly Christ was not doing it wrong. His method was not antiquated. Right? We see in John chapter 4, street evangelism. We'll get to this toward the end. Where Christ, it, he does a cold call. And he goes right up to a Samaritan woman. And he engages in dialogue. Shares the gospel. So we see street evangelism, Jesus doing it himself. And then Jesus, for three and a half years, engaged in the very difficult exercise of relational evangelism for three and a half years. So we see open-air preaching, we see street evangelism, we see relational evangelism with Martha and Mary and Lazarus and his brothers and his parents. We see all of them. Every single one is done in context. Given the people, given the place, given the time, it's done wisely. Remember last week, wise as serpent, serpent, innocent as doves. So let's look really quickly at the context. Why is it important? Your dialogue with your unsaved father will be different than the dialogue you have with your teacher. It will be. The relationship's different. The time that you have is different. 
Your dialogue with your best friend will be very different than the dialogue you have with that person sitting next to you in the airplane. You got a two-hour flight. It'll be different. It'll be different. Now, the message stays the same. You say, oh, different people, different message. No, message stays the same. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe and obey. It always stays the same. But the context will shape how that is conveyed. How so? Same message, different venues require us to be wise. I'll give you an example of, I had two students, same age, both male. One that I met after speaking at San Jose State, I was preaching at San Jose State, one I met after the sermon. And he was, he was unsaved, and he really struggled with this whole idea that Jesus Christ was the only way to God. He really struggled with this whole idea that Christ was the Messiah for the world. And so, as we started talking, I thought to myself, okay, I got maybe 30 minutes, 45 tops, right? I, that doesn't mean you can't ask the person to meet sometime later, but in this particular case, I never saw him again. And so, what did I want to do? The gospel message, yes, need to share it. But in 30 minutes, I'm thinking, okay, I've never met this person before, so I need to hear them. I wanted to hear his struggles. I wanted to hear his questions and his criticism and his concerns. But before the end of that dialogue, I wanted him also to hear what God had to say to him. I wanted him to hear that he, too, will stand before God, and that God is real, and that heaven is real, and that hell is real, and that he's a sinner, and that he needs to repent. I wanted him to hear that. And so I made sure that before the end of that 30-minute dialogue that he heard the gospel of grace. I never saw him again. By God's grace, I will one day in heaven. Right? Student, male. Another student, same time, had him. He was a Baha'i. Now, the students I would have generally for six months to a year, on average... This young man came into my class in the fall quarter, an economics class, and he knew that I was a pastor, and I, actually I was in seminary at the time, and he wanted to share his faith with me, and we started talking, and it, and it opened up a wonderful relationship. And we spent about nine months, we spent going back and forth, and I was helping him, for those of you who do not know, the Baha'i faith, it's a conglomeration of the eight major world religions, and they believe in progressive dispensational revelation, where all these different people come down, and they have, you know, Christ is one of many of the great prophets that came down to speak through God. Um, he was raised in this. He was devout. So he's an 18-year-old, 19-year-old young man, devout Baha'i. He engaged in all their major festivals. He fasted. He prayed. He wasn't just someone who did it twice a year. And so there was lots of unpacking to do. And so I shared the gospel and scripture with him over nine months. He graduated. I never saw him again. Right? Two students, both males, same age, different context, same message, different venue. Context matters. If I had said to myself, to the Baha'i student, all right, you got 30 minutes. I got 30 minutes. And then that was it. It wouldn't be wise. If, I say, if I'm having this dialogue with this gentleman after the conference, thinking, okay, I got nine months to develop this, wouldn't be wise. Context is important. The message doesn't change. The message doesn't change, but the context does. So, second thing I want you to see as we go out is that Christ is shared always and everywhere. And I love this. 
And you're, this is, okay, so sometimes pastors have aha moments and everybody's going, duh. Well, that just happens, you know? You spend the week meditating and praying and studying scripture. You get aha moments everybody else already gets, all right? Maybe we're just a little slower at times than you guys. Every message is about Christ and the cross. Every message, all the harvest workers, they're always going out. And it's always about Christ. Always and everywhere. It's Christ crucified. Always and everywhere. It's the gospel message. You say, well, that's the Bible. <laughs> of course. What else do you expect them to say? It's the Bible. But that's supposed to be us too. When we go out, always and everywhere, it should be a crucified Christ. On our hearts and minds, it should be our Savior. When we're talking with those in our mission field, it should always and everywhere be Jesus Christ. Not the band-aids we talked about this morning. Not, you know, you need to pray a little or read a little or give a little. It should be a crucified Christ. Always and everywhere. Now, if we're going to be real blunt about this and, and ask ourselves some questions, how many of our relationships with the unsaved never ever make it to that level? They never get there. They never get there. How many of us, bluntly, how many of us have long-standing friendships with people who do not know Christ and we have never shared Christ with them? How many? It may be a friend, it may be a family member, it may be a coworker that you've worked with for 20 years and you spend time with coffee and you have lunch together and they don't know Christ and you've never shared the gospel. What's going on with that? If Christ is always and everywhere preached and taught in the harvest field and we're called out in the harvest field, then he must be center stage as well. He must be there. He must be on our lips. If he's on our heart, he will be. Those relationships with long-standing friends and coworkers and family members that you've never shared Christ with, listen, that means that that relationship is more about you than them. If you've never shared Christ with someone you've spent a huge amount of time with, and I am guilty of this, guilty of this. I have men that I've coached with, some for a few years, some who've never heard me testify to Christ. What is that? That's a terrible testimony. They know I'm a pastor. I got the door wide open. I mean, I have license to share, right? They think you're paid for this. This is your job. That's a failure. When we have relationships with people and Christ is not center stage in that relationship wisely, then that relationship is more about us than it is about them. We're more concerned about maintaining that peace than sharing the gospel and leading them to the cross and showing them the cross of Christ. These people should be committed to God in prayer. These are people that we need to see as the, the, the lost in our mission group. Remember, we talked about the first message, we're all evangelists, we're all missionaries, and we all have a mission field. Well, these are the people in our mission field. So if we're here, right, God's left us here to share the glory of Christ. And they're in our mission field, and they haven't heard it. What's going on? You know, if we equipped you and we sent you to a faraway place to share the gospel of grace and plant a church, and you did not, we'd fire you, right? I mean, we would. We'd say, you're not doing your work. you say, you're right, I'm not. Fire me. And yet the same thing for us. We go to work every day with unsaved coworkers, and we never share Christ. We live next to people, neighbors, 10, 20, 30 years. We mow our lawns at the same time. We wave as we go to school. We have neighborhood socials that don't know Christ. It's our mission field. Thankfully, God doesn't fire us. <laughs> 
Jesus Christ always and everywhere is preached. And he's preached in a relational and relentless manner. It's not either or. And I don't want to grow impatient, but I grow weary of the debates I do at times. Relational evangelism, relentless evangelism. It's not either or, it's both. We see Christ doing both. We see him doing open air preaching. We see him on the streets. We see him doing relational evangelism. We see him as relational and relentless at the exact same time. That's why he was so good. When he was washing their feet, those crusty feet of his disciples, he was being radically relational. When he told Peter to get behind him, Satan, he was being relentless. But it was not either or, it was always both together. And when we're called out into our harvest field, we're called to be relational and relentless at the same time. How does that work? The Samaritan woman at the well, we could spend another five sermons on this, but we won't, I promise. We could, though. In John chapter 4, Jesus Christ is radically relational and radically relentless with this woman. How so? First, from the reading, notice that he approaches her and asks her for a drink of water. And you say, that's not very relational. It sounds like he's asking her to serve him. The fact that he's communicating with a Samaritan woman is extraordinary. It was taboo in the culture. They were considered unclean. And an unclean Samaritan woman, even worse. And so by Christ going to her and asking her for a drink, he tears down the cultural taboo and he says, listen, I am valuing you as a person. I'm relating to you as someone created in the image of God. He's relating to her. In fact, her response is fantastic. He asks her, For a drink of water, saying, I value you as a person, as someone created in the image of God. And her response in verse 9 is, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? This isn't right. Culturally, we know this is not right. What are you doing? You shouldn't be talking to me. Rabboni? Rabbi? How how can you be talking to me? And Jesus, I love it. His mind is so singularly focused on loving people to the cross, he doesn't get caught up in this cultural dialogue, does he? He doesn't. What does he do? He moves from the cultural and he goes straight to the spiritual. Look what he does. In verse 10, I don't know if I have it there. I apologize if I don't. He answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who is it that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He says, you want to talk culture? You want to talk about Jews and Samaritans and Jewish men not talking to Samaritan women? No. Listen. Much better dialogue. And he shifts from temporal to eternal, from cultural to spiritual. He makes a shift. Why? He is relating to her in a relentless fashion. He is more concerned about her soul than he is a a cultural taboo. Or even her impression of him, or more importantly, the disciples' impressions of him, or the Pharisees' impressions of him. He's relentless. And so what does he do? He presses in. I love this. He relates to her and then he presses in deep and he says to her, go and call your husband and come back. We're talking about cultural taboos. There's a little bit of conversation about where they're going to worship and we're talking about getting a little bit of water and some living water and he says, go call your husband. What's he doing? What's he doing? Why, Why the dialogue about her husband? How does he even know she's married? Do you remember the dialogue? She says, I have no husband. 
And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. What did he do? He relates to her in a radical way, and then he relentlessly pursues her soul to the cross. What is he doing? What is he doing? He's causing her to see her sin before a holy God. And she has to admit to hear, she doesn't know this, but she gets it. This is the Messiah. And she has to say to him, I I don't have a husband. I have five. I'm an adulterer. I'm an adulteress. I've broken the laws of God. I'm a sinner. He values her as a person and then presses her because her soul When Christ said, I came to seek and save that which was lost, she was included. You were included. Your friends are included. Your family's included. He was, he was more concerned about her than he was about his reputation. And what happened? What, what happened with her? She came to a saving grace, but it, wasn't, it didn't stop there. She goes back. And John tells us that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of what? Of her testimony. Street evangelism. He has an open dialogue with this woman, breaking cultural taboos, disengaging in cultural conversation, takes to the spiritual, brings up the sin, and what happens? She comes to a saving grace, and she becomes an evangelist in her own town. A Samaritan female. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. In just a few minutes, in just a few minutes, look what he did. Now, if you're the type to say, oh, I have to build a relationship first, go read the book of Acts. Go read the Gospels again. You will find that the missionaries that go out, we are relational and relentless at the same time. And if Christ is on your heart and mind, then you will testify to him with those people that you love most. That means it's not the gospel in street evangelism, but not at work. It's not the gospel with our family, but not our neighbors. It's not either or. It's both all the time. I've heard believers say to me, I'm earning the right to be heard. I'm establishing the relationship. And then then when, when the time is right, I'll bring Christ in. You know what often happens in those? That bridge building? And I'm, listen... Relational evangelism is biblical, so don't say, oh, we're not supposed to do that. But you bridge that build, you build that bridge too long, and then carrying the cargo of Christ and the gospel across the bridge is very heavy. Because then the person thinks, oh, this is bait and switch. You're just trying to get me this whole time. In fact, I found with brothers and sisters in Christ, the longer they engage in this relationship without testifying to Christ, the harder it becomes. Two, three, four years pass. Much more difficult. Jesus Christ calls us to be relational and relentless, to press in gently and lovingly on those whom we say we love. Whom we, if we say we love our, our family members who do not know Christ, and yet we are not engaging them with the gospel, then how can you say you really love them? How can you say you really love them, body and soul? Because we looked at this last week, when their body dies, they don't know Christ, we know where their soul is going, you'll be reunited in hell. You can't say you love them passionately. These people that we work with, I mean, we work with people we see every day in a cubicle, that little weird thing that divides you, 
They don't know Christ and you've never shared the gospel with them. They will die and they will come before the creator. And if they don't know Christ, they will be judged accordingly and they will spend an eternity in hell. That's not okay. You shouldn't be okay with that. I don't care how much you dislike them or how loud they are. You shouldn't be. We can't be okay with people in our mission field being lost. We can't be okay with it. The great evangelist preacher George Whitfield said, he used to pray to God, he said, Lord, give me the mixture of the lion and the lamb. Make me relational and relentless at the same time. The same time. This is how our Lord came to us. This is how Christ came into our harvest field. Right? He came in the flesh living, serving, sharing the gospel, and ultimately dying on the cross according to the power of God. He came under the power of God. He submitted all things to the Father. He came as a living testimony, right? I mean, he lived that life that we could not live, and he died the death that we were supposed to die, and then he imparts his righteousness to us. He came as the ultimate living testimony, under the power of God, as a living testimony. And he came in perfect context, Every single person that he met, every single person that he dealt with, he dealt with properly. And it wasn't because he was the son of God. It was because he had a passionate love for his father and he had a passionate love for the lost. That means it'll move you into dialogue, right dialogue, at the right time, in the right way, with all the people on your mission field. He was a living testimony. The author of Hebrews says this, for this reason he, Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make an atonement for the sins of the people. That Jesus Christ from the cross offers us that same atoning grace. That same power to go out. The same message that he came with, he sends us out with. The same power of the gospel of grace. To go out and be his hands and his feet. Jesus Christ from the cross calls us first to repent and believe. And then to call others to repent and believe as well. In that same dialogue with the Samaritan woman at the well. From the cross he offers this, this, the thirsty man living water. When he said to her whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, listen, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Springs that well over. Great illustration. That's how we are to be. So filled, so overwhelmed with the glory of God, so, so um, caught up in the majesty of the work of the cross and what Christ poured out, that when we meet people, it will well over. That someone will have to cap you. What a great problem for his church. Are you welling over? Is the gospel moving out into every fabric of your life? Are you faithfully going out under the power of God in prayer by the Holy Spirit as a living testimony? Are you? I mean, we, these are questions we can't just go, this is interesting. This is what the Bible says. And then leave this place and be okay with us not going out properly. If you see Christ clearly on the cross, if you see the work that he did for you, 
That he came to you in perfect context. He came to you with the message of grace. He said to you, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said to you, listen, you are living in darkness. I want you to come into the light. And he says, here I am. Take me. Receive me. If you contemplate this and you know this, then you, you cannot not go out. Unless we've forgotten it. We're suffering from amnesia. Reflect upon the grace of God offered through Jesus Christ. Reflect upon his broken body. Reflect upon his spilled blood. Reflect upon the incredible grace he offered to you when you were dead in your sins and transgressions. And how glad you already did. Because he did. Someone shared the message with you, but he's the one who saved you. And then in that gratitude, that eternal gratitude, go out. Go out. We've been praying for weeks now. The last five weeks, six weeks, Wednesday night, for those people in our mission field. We've been lifting them up by name and asking God to send the Holy Spirit before us to convict their hearts and minds, to show them that they are living in darkness, to show them their desperate need for a Savior. We pray for them. We know the Holy Spirit must go before us, and then we must go out. We must be the ones with the beautiful feet that share the testimony. How are they going to call upon the Lord unless they hear? And how are they going to hear unless we're sent? We've got to go. You're an evangelist. You're a missionary. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This week coming up, even the non-believer, there's a heightened awareness of this Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, resurrected Messiah. This week, be praying for those people. This week, ask God for the opportunity to share the gospel of grace. This week, as we lead up to a Sunday where we recognize the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this week, if it's not upon your heart and mind now, then ask God to place it there, to give him that deep desire to go out and be faithful harvest workers. Let's pray to that end right now. Father, we recognize um, that your son came not just to show us how to do it, Lord, but to impart to us the righteousness that even in our failures, and we're so thankful for this, even in our failures as harvest workers, you still redeem us. I pray, Father, that we would, as a church, love you and love those created in your image so much that it's impossible for us to remain silent. That we would see our, our, our family members, those, some that we've been raised with, brothers and sisters, even our parents. We have parents that do not know you. I pray that you would press upon our hearts that it's not okay for them not to know you and that it's not okay for us to have dinner with them and lunch with them and Christmas and Easter with them and not share the gospel with them. I pray that you would place a burden upon our heart to look upon our co-workers as you looked upon Jerusalem and to weep for their lostness. That you would call us to share your son with those long-standing friends. That we would carry the gospel of grace across that bridge that we've built and we'd share it. That we'd no longer allow the time to pass. This week, Father, ignite these people. Ignite your church throughout the world. That we'd be bold in our testimony bearing much fruit in the harvest. For you are right, Lord. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. So I pray to you, the Lord of the harvest, send out your workers. Send us out 
rightly. In Christ's name I pray.